Hey, what's up, guys? This is uh, your host, Jonathan Niederer. Welcome to the Cinema at Random podcast. This is our first ever episode, and we're going to be covering three masterpieces. Yes, they are masterpieces. The first one is a ragtag zombie indie movie made in the mid-60s by a man named George Romero. And it basically kicked off the modern zombie genre as we know it today. And it is, of course, Night of the Living Dead. The second is a politically oriented spaghetti western movie from the great Sergio Salima. And it is the first installment in his uh, western political trilogy that he made. And the third is an outrageously smart and satirical cinema contribution from none other than Brian De Palma himself. So I'm really excited to talk about these movies with you guys. Um, this is the first episode of the podcast. Uh, it's a solo episode. Uh, future episodes, I, I do want to um, have some guests come on, but for this one, it's, it's just me sitting in a room talking about these movies. Uh, just want to kind of intro you to what this podcast is going to be about before I get into the first movie here. Um, it's Cinemat Random. So we're taking three movies or two movies, kind of depending on the episode, that may not seem like they're connected in any way and sort of drawing through lines for how they uh, could be connected, could be seen together as like a double bill or a triple bill or something. Um, and... You know, this is going to be kind of done in two ways. One will be the, the sort of pre-picked movies that I've thought about and it's sort of like a thesis, essentially. Um, and the other, which is going to be probably more exciting, is I'm just going to write down, you know, six to eight movies, put them in a hat, and just pick pick movies out of a hat. And then I'm going to have to draw through lines between these random movies that probably don't have anything in common and uh, it's going to be extremely difficult and extremely entertaining um, to listen to me sweat and struggle my way through as I, uh, as I, as I try to do that, but also just, you know, talking about them, talking about the directors and giving you a rundown of, uh, you know, 20th century cinema. That is the, that is going to be the only rule of this podcast. We are not covering any movie that, was made after 1999. So this first um, batch of movies I have picked, I so I've been wanting to talk about The Big Gun Down and Night of the Living Dead together as one episode. And then I had the idea to, to throw a curveball in here and pick a third movie out of a hat. So I, I put 10 movies, 10 movie titles into a hat Shook it all up, picked picked one out, and I got body double. So we have body double in in the mix now, and uh, I have no idea yet how I'm gonna tie body double into these other two movies. So a little context here. Um, this is uh, this is a film from the spaghetti western genre. So for those of you who may not know about spaghetti westerns, they're Italian westerns that were made in mostly in the mid '60s, mid 1960s, 
And the movie that really kicked the whole thing off was Fistful of Dollars, um, which was made super low budget and with super low expectations, uh, and it ended up being a huge smash hit. And, uh, you know, subsequently... Uh, the Italian, the studios sort of like uh, reorganized around creating spaghetti westerns, and there were a ton of spaghetti western movies made in the mid '60s. Um, and uh, one of the most famous ones, of course, which most of you've probably heard of, even if you're not big cinema freaks, uh, is The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And this movie, The Big Gun Down, came out. Uh, the same year as The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, a few months afterwards, and it has one of the stars uh, of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, the great Lee Van Cleef. So the movie is really centered around this sort of sprawling dynamic between the two main characters, uh, Cuchillo, who is sort of this uh, wily, knife-wielding, trickster Mexican guy, um, who has been accused of raping um, raping an innocent young woman, and he is being hunted down by uh, by a bounty hunter uh, played by Lee Van Cleef, um, who is sort of this uh, this idealist man. Um, uh, he's not a, a stupid man; he's a competent gunslinger, but he. He, I think he, he's an idealist, so he has a, a vision of the world and how he thinks the world should be, and he's constantly, um, uh, you know, this, this view is constantly um, in conflict with sort of the reality of the worlds in which he inhabits and in which he's moving through, and uh, Cuchillo, um, without giving too much away becomes almost sort of like a bouncing board for his view. And the dynamic between them is just really, uh, hilarious. I mean, it's a, it's a great, it's a wonderful example of, you know, you write these two have having two very different characters who want very different things. Uh, well, actually to say they want very different things actually may not necessarily be fair. Actually, I think at the heart, they, they both want similar things. Um, but they're, they're, outlook and just their personalities and the way they move through the worlds, uh, you know, c- couldn't be more different. Cuchillo's the ultimate sort of trickster, charmer, manipulator. He's always working everybody against each other. And it's funny because um, as the audience, we are being manipulated a bit by Salima here in the sense that going into this thing... Uh, Cuchillo is painted at the beginning of this film as being a monster, essentially. Um, there, the this railroad tycoon um, guy who named Broxton, who uh, Lee Van Cleef's character meets with at the beginning of the movie, is talking about you know what Cuchillo's done and and all this stuff, and it's uh, it's painting him in a pretty bad light. And we're sort of just all we really know is that and we're following Lee Van Cleef in the beginning as he's sort of hunting down this mad maniac. And, you know, there's this beautiful sort of moment when he first meets Cuchillo in this, uh, along this river bed. And he's there with this 13 year old girl, um, who's part of this homesteader party that Cuchillo's somehow joined up with. Um, and they're down at the river and he's sort of, 
messing around and playing in the water and trying to get this girl to jump in the water with him. And yeah, he's a little bit of a shady guy, but he's, but to us, we see this as a super, this is like a sinister moment. We're like, Oh shit, he's going to do something bad to this girl. And, uh, this is, this is dark. And Lee Van Cleef shows up and then the girl shoots, ends up shooting. He confronts Cuchillo and then the girl ends up shooting Lee Van Cleef in the back. And one thing that's uh, very telling about Cuchillo early on that um, on a first watch, you know, you may, you may not necessarily notice um, is that all the women who Cuchillo is, has interacted with speak very positively about him and, uh, and, you know, like have his back. Um, you know, we see this uh, early early on when Lee Van Cleef first sets out after him, he, he comes across this prostitute, um, in a town who, uh, who, you know, speaks very affectionately about her time that she spent with him. Um, and again, this, and this, this moment at the river has this sort of innocence to it. It's like, he's, he's, inviting this girl to come, you know, play with him, but it, but there, but it can be also viewed as there's no sexual connotation or malice to it. It's just, he wants to, you know, play with this girl and have fun and, and have warmth in his life. And I think that, uh, you know, on a first watch again, we're still going to be you know, sort of manipulated for lack of a better word into thinking that as we should be, cause it's part of what makes the movie entertaining and interesting, um, into thinking that he's this, you know, this sadistic monster. Um, but you know, we don't yet realize that there's this other side to him, this playful, fun sort of, uh, sort of side to him. There was a European sort of cut of this film. And then the, the, American distribution was picked up by Columbia and they cut a lot of stuff out of this movie for the American cut. They cut, they cut a lot of extra things out to emphasize basically to market this thing as like a super violent, um, action Western movie and emphasize that. And they also cut out the, um, the political, some of the political themes and sort of, tried to play those down as much as possible and tamper those down. And we're going to get into those, um, in a second. But, um, I, I think it's just interesting the way that our perception of, of Cuchillo sort of changes. It's almost like this movie is a mystery, you know, where it's a good, it's a, there's a twist coming. Um, and well, just get right down to it. The twist is, you know, Cuchillo is being framed by this railroad tycoon. And so Lee Van Cleef takes off after Cochillo, who's on the run. And Cochillo, you know, he basically jumped out of the river and got on a horse and took off. And he ends up um, at getting pulling up to this ranch in the mountains. Um, this kind of just this ranch in the middle of nowhere. Um, and this kicks off one of my favorite sequences in all of spaghetti Western cinema in all of Western cinema. It's, it's an incredible sequence that takes place at this, at this ranch of this matriarch 
woman who um who has all these sort of brooding hunky muscle men uh ultra macho guys sort of working on her ranch uh seemingly you know under her thumb um and it's alluded to that the woman is a widow and she literally is is like a black widow spider in the sense that Cuchillo is this is this stupid helpless bug who has walked into her web essentially he has to i guess first prove himself by facing off against a bull and it's just a fantastic sequence <laughs> the bull the bull there's one point where the bull runs into Cuchillo he goes flying up in the air and we're cutting back and forth between him fighting this bull and this we're cutting on the under these close-ups of the woman biting her lip she's obviously you know sexually aroused by this scene and and uh and Cuchillo you know sort of facing off and getting the shit beat out of him by this bull you know because it's Cuchillo and he's the ultimate trickster and you know, he has this cartoonish sort of the way he maneuvers. He's just able to get this bull trapped. And I think that the woman and her and her men were sort of assuming that this thing would just kind of uh, knock Cachillo on his ass and, you know, kill him or something. And uh, he ends up like fighting this bull, no problem. And uh, and then he's sort of put through a series of sort of like fucked up situations until Lee Van Cleef shows up. And then there's a whole sequence of Lee Van Cleef trying to convince them now they're sort of claiming Cuchillo as, as their property. And Lee Van Cleef is basically trying to, you know, get him released. The whole thing is very reminiscent of Tarantino's Django Unchained. It feels... Uh, like Tarantino must have uh, on some level been inspired by this sequence in particular for Django. And of course they are surrounded by uh, very rocky terrain. There are just hills of rocks surrounding them. And this is an iconic sort of uh, geographical terrain setting in that you see in a lot of spaghetti Westerns. There are sort of three, iconic sort of like types of imagery that I that I find in spaghetti westerns and that I love about spaghetti westerns and <clears throat> the the rocky terrain is one um and uh and then the just the stunning opulent victorian garb that um many of the female characters wear oftentimes uh, prostitutes wear um is just a a stunning inter Italian of course interpretation of uh of the American West and uh and and is always just you know looks incredible on camera and then the third of of course which which isn't really seen in this movie as much um is the sort of the iconic man with no name mysterious guy who's walked into town nobody knows who he is and the shit is about to pop off with this guy and uh and those are really like three iconic things and this and this movie you know both Cuchillo and uh Lee Van Cleef's character 
you know, they're not these mysterious men with no name guys. We are, you know, from the beginning, we're clear on who they are, where they've been, um, and where they're going, and what they want. And uh, and I think that's an interesting sort of uh, part of this film that's that juxtaposes it a little bit with with some of the other westerns that were being made in Italy right at this time. So uh, we have this whole sequence. Um, it's uh, it's an incredible sequence. I mean, it's just the op- the operatic violence in this, the cartoon quality of Cuchillo hopping around, and this one point where they they uh, Lee Van Cleef is about to exit out of the front door of this ranch house, and all of her the woman's men are are waiting for him, and they're basically just going to gun him down and ambush him, and Cuchillo sort of waves at him and gives him the signal like, Hey, you're about to get gunned down here. And a whole shootout sort of ensues. And Cochillo is kind of running around playing everybody against each other. Ultimately, of course he escapes. And then the, the search for him continues. The dynamic between these two characters is just so good. Also. I mean, I would watch a whole, a whole TV series or something about these two guys there. Um, it's just a funny dynamic and sort of an understated one. Um, and, uh, you know, part of what makes Cuchillo interesting as sort of like an alleged villain, if you will, um, is he, you know, he's not the typical uh, rough, hairy, old, uh, tequila-swigging you know, guy that we see in a lot of spaghetti westerns. Um, he's, you know, he's younger, he's playful, he's boyish, um, he's he's good looking, and he's a funny contrast with Lee Van Cleef's character, who, yes, is a skilled gunslinger and a bounty hunter and uh, all that, but also you know, has a real sort of moral compass and humanity. Both these characters have such a strong sense of humanity. I mean, even uh, there's a scene at the beginning of the movie where Lee Van Cleef has um, tracked these bandits in the mountains down and he's 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 going to execute them. And, uh, you know, he you can tell that, you know, just by the way he talks to them and the way apparently in the Italian cut, which I am going to watch, and there is going to be a follow-up episode where I talk about that cut, by the way. Um, uh, you know, apparently in the, in the Italian cut, you know, he lays uh, the bullets down on this log and he kind of, you know, he knows that he can kill these guys in half a second, but he sort of gives them a fighting chance to you know, fend for themselves. Um, you know, it's, it's spaghetti Western fairness, you know? Um, but, but with that being said, like, you know, these guys are, you know, they're not just like these, uh, these smirky, uh, you know, total cartoon, like badass guys. They have a real heart to them. Um, and that's part of what makes them so special. So I'm going to read a, uh, a quick little review of this movie um, from a critic, uh, Dennis Schwartz. Uh, not necessarily a positive review, 
The story was muddled, the acting was brutal, and the continuous brutality was cartoonish, made for thrills and entertainment purposes only. The movie's only redeeming worth was that it was it made some valid points about the justice system and showed it meant what it said. It should appeal to those who don't mind how cheesy it all is, and that even Van Cleef, even if Van Cleef is a one-dimensional actor, he nevertheless has a tremendous screen presence. Yeah, I mean, I guess I could see where this guy's coming from a little bit on the Lee Van Cleef, but I do disagree. Um, uh, you know, that scene in the up in the mountains in the beginning when the when the bandit is, you know, sort of pleading for his life and telling Lee Van Cleef sort of, you know, how he became a bandit to to help out his family because his family was starving and there was then there was no other option and he's like, you know, begging for his life. You can see the hesitation in Lee Van Cleef's eyes. You can see the the sort of like uh, empathy that he's feeling for this man, and uh, and I and I I just yeah I don't think that's accurate. I mean I do think that there you know there are times where he feels like he's fulfilling maybe a a plot point or he's he's just being used as someone to sort of move the story along. But he has his scene at the end when he when his you know, when his arc is completed, when he realizes, you know, I'm not gonna give the ending away. I've already given away the, you know, sort of a major twist. <clears throat> but he uh he realizes that um he has this sort of epiphany about things and comes around on certain things and uh and it's a powerful moment. And yeah, I mean, we don't know a ton about his backstory. We don't know a ton about him as a person. Um, but he's still a character that has dimension and that has an arc and that. Um, and I think that's reflected in his eyes. I can see that in his eyes, in his performance. You know, it's funny. I, I saw an interview with Salima where he was talking about how he loved the Western genre so much and respected the Western genre so much and he could never even fathom of making a Western with caricature type of characters. But, you know, of course, you know, it's a spaghetti Western. So a lot of these characters are sort of caricatures in a sense. I mean, I think he might be maybe more talking about how he wouldn't make something like the good, the bad and the ugly, where the characters are literally, you know, sort of whittled into these these, you know, the good, there's the bad and there's the ugly. Um, but as all spaghetti Westerns or as many spaghetti Westerns and many of the great spaghetti Westerns, there is a sort of cartoonish caricature graphic sort of feel in the violence, in the camera movement, in the facial expressions. Um, uh, I mean, especially, I mean, Cuchillo, of course, but also the, the railroad tycoon, um, and even Lee Van Cleef, um, you know, these guys, uh, the smirk, I think the spaghetti Western smirk, um, the sounds, I mean, all the sounds and the mixing and the music, it's very, it's, the style is just very cartoonish in the best way possible. And I love this uh, this line that one of the, the woman's henchmen uh, gives. I guess henchmen is the best way to sort of describe these guys. Um, in these mountains, we have no law but the bullets in our gun. And that's just a perfect summarization of sort of the Italian romanticism and obsession with Western violence and Western way of life and Western law. I mean, these movies are all about the Italian interpretation of the American West 
And of course, that's going to include things like Victorian era sort of like costume and wardrobe pieces, which are spectacular. Let's get down to sort of the political scathing societal critiques of this. I mean, you know, it's nothing uh, it's nothing super deep or, or complex or mysterious even. It's all pretty obvious. But despite being obvious, the movie does not at all feel didactic to me, which is which is great because um, that would have sank it. And I and I think what keeps it from feeling didactic is the violence and is the the cartoonish quality and the spaghetti western elements of it. I think that's what makes spaghetti western genre and revisionist westerns. It, it's like what makes them work. The violence and the brutality and also the um, moral ambiguity levels it out so they can make a statement without seeming like they're trying to like be idealists and knock a point over your head, you know. And that's what makes a movie like this work, or part of it at least. The, uh, the Railroad Tycoon's son-in-law, or soon-to-be son-in-law, has raped and murdered an innocent young girl, and the tycoon is basically trying to cover up for him, not for his sake, he doesn't give a shit about his son-in-law, it's for his, uh, his daughter's image, and of course for the tycoon's image. Um, and how is he going to cover this up? He's going to do it by murdering a innocent Mexican man and, and basically placing all the blame onto him. And, you know, it's a, it's a pretty simple thing, a simple point, I guess, or plot point of the movie. Um, but, you know, it's pretty powerful, especially for that time, um, you know, when this came out. Um, when did this came out? What is it, like 66? This came out. I think it's six. Oh, sixty-eight, sixty-seven. When the hell did this movie come out? Sixty-six. The movie came out in sixty-six. So you know, it's at that point in time, this was a pretty profound, a scathing sort of criticism. Yeah, you know, nowadays it's pretty easy for us to sort of take a political point like this being made um you know a powerful businessman using uh the law to protect essentially his own business interests um you know it's easy for us to take a point like that being made in a film for granted um but at the time that was uh, a pretty striking and controversial thing to be trying to pull off um uh, especially in the United States. And it also really establishes this film as a, as one of the early, uh, revisionist Westerns, um, which, you know, the, the, the idea of a revisionist Western is sort of essentially showing the West for really what it was and giving it a more realistic, gritty, you know, showing the violence, showing the corruption, um, and uh, this is an important early example of that work. I mean, before this, you know, obviously, you know, it's uh, a lot of, you know, a lot of the Westerns, the American Westerns um, were very much about 
idealizing the West, and that was sort of our our where we were in the culture, you know, post World War II. Um, it was it was about a time where you know we were idealizing our culture and and proud of where we were, and uh, these revisionist westerns just sort of came in and fucking stomped all over that basically, and of course the timing is rather serendipitous. Um, you know, 1966, the Vietnam War really gets going, and uh, you know we have civil rights movement and you know, we really start to rethink and uh, reevaluate things. And it, and it becomes, uh, you know, the, sort of the real beginning for a lot of fights in America that are still uh, happening to this very day and that stem back to, um, to corruption and atrocities and things that were happening, you know, back in the, in the West in the 1800s when these films were set and of course before that i think we needed the you know someone like the italians uh ironically who were we were at war with in world war ii but then they they come back uh you know 20 years later with the you know with the spaghetti westerns uh you know whether they really wanted to or not i don't i don't necessarily think they were trying to be super critical of american culture i don't I don't know about that, um, but I think it's funny the the implications, and then all of the revisionist Western masterpieces, you know, made by American directors, such as you know the Wild Bunch and Unforgiven, being the two pinnacles. Um, so, yeah, there we are with that. I have a lot of respect for Salima and uh, his screenwriter um, and what they sort of took on here. Um, and I just think it's a wonderful film. I think it's it's just crafted masterfully. I mean, it's not quite on the level of craft that films like Once Upon a Time in the West or films like um, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly uh, are on. You know, those movies are just um, complete cinematic spectacles that are in a, you know, a realm of their own, really. Um, but... It this still is a fantastic uh, spaghetti western and um, and well worth a watch. You're still afraid. Stop it now! I mean it. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Stop it! You're ignorant. They're coming for you, Barbara. Stop it! You're acting like a child. They're coming for you. Look, there comes one of them now. He'll hear you. Here he comes now. I'm getting out of here. John. Okay, so, Night of the Living Dead. The original title for this was actually The Monster Flick. How imaginary. Um, and then it became Night of the Flesh Eaters. But the production company, George Romero and his producers, got a cease and desist letter from a distributor um, because they already were using the title Flesh Eaters for something and they didn't want to get into a legal battle on their first, on their first movie. So then uh, George Romero had the idea to, to rename it Night of Anubis, Anubis being an ancient Egyptian god and... 
I think he felt like that was esoteric enough where most likely nobody was going to be using that that name. Um, and then, uh, you know, it eventually landed and became Night of the Living Dead, which I think, you know, is clearly uh, the best title. Um, although I could, strangely enough, see a movie today being called The Monster Flick. It has sort of a ironic postmodern thing going on and uh you know i could see it today um so i'm gonna actually kick this off with a review and you know so much has been said about night of the living dead at this point um you know i'm really i'm not gonna break the movie down and and go through every scene or you know anything like that I'm, i'm actually i'm just gonna i'm gonna read this review and then i'm gonna basically argue for uh you know, why I disagree with this review and why it should be looked at, you know, why it's, why it's worth a little bit more than this, this review, just sort of putting, throwing it under the bus, basically. Okay. So here's the review. Anyone who wanders into the new Amsterdam and other theaters showing Night of the Living Dead is in for a ghastly picnic. The title immediately cues a tale of horror, but does not prepare one for the shocking treatment of the dead. The action revolves on a fantastic idea. A space experiment sets off a high-level radiation that activates the dead and transforms them, transforms them into man-eating monsters. The theme could not be in poorer taste. <laughs> the Walter Reed organization must have had its eyes closed when it accepted this unbelievably horrible film. Great. Thank you for that. And Guarino in the uh, New York Daily News. Uh, so I, I mean, I think it's, it's a interesting, it gives us an interesting bit of context reading this review. I know, you know, a lot of people felt this way about this movie when it first came out. Um, it is a pretty shocking movie. I mean, even by today's standards, um, there are things in this that are pretty shocking and disturbing. Um, and I think it's funny that she uh, she <laughs> like spoke highly of it as like having the good the beginnings of a good sci-fi story. I mean, it just really shows where the culture was at at that time. Um, it was easier to ingest maybe like a a good exciting like B monster movie or B sci-fi movie. But you know, once shit gets real, people are you know taking a step back from that. People were not used to you know nowadays, um, you know, coming out with a super horrific, violent movie. I mean, that's like you know how you make money. I mean, you know, look at places like Blumhouse and whatnot. Um, but back then, uh, this was really sort of a revolutionary film in a, in a few ways. Um, first of all, it was it was really the movie that kicked off the modern zombie film as we know it today. I, you know, before this, it was sort of like a mad scientist on an island somewhere creating, you know, there was like a slave allegory going on with the zombies. And, um, and Night of the Living Dead really modernized the genre and, and took it, you know, a couple steps forward. Um, and, you know, every zombie movie made you know, since has, has a lot to, you know, it's, it all goes back to Night of the Living Dead, of course. Um, and, uh, you know, just on like a craft, just from like a craft standpoint, this movie is really an impressive first film from George Romero. It's, uh, 
you know, it, it has sort of a Eisenstein silent film quality to it. It really feels like a collage of macabre and action sequences and um, macabre imagery, I should say. Um, and you could really watch this film honestly with the sound off and and really retain you know the whole story and understand all of what's going on and I think it would still be a thrilling cinematic experience um, obviously the score is a huge part of it it has a fantastic eerie spooky you know 1960s score that's uh really fun and cozy and you know gives it this halloween sort of feel so it starts out she's going to the the this graveyard to visit um uh the grave of their dead oh man i a father i think it's their father um this this woman named barbara and her brother and her brother has a very sort of cynical view on things he doesn't want to be there he doesn't really care and uh, they've driven, you know, like two hours from the city to go out to this sort of like farm area in Pennsylvania. And basically, you know, they visit the grave and the, the brother's making these sort of, you know, smart alecky comments about what, you know, having to be there and complaining. And and they see this this man sort of wandering through the graveyard and um, the ship pops off we got a fucking we got a, light, a strike of lightning and uh literally the shit pops off the guy comes he attacks barbara uh the brother tries to defend her he gets mauled by this man and the the movie sort of kicks off and she's running running from the man and ends up stumbling upon this this farmhouse in the sort of in the middle of nowhere in the Pennsylvania countryside she enters the house, and and this whole part just it really it really reminds me of of silent film. Um, just the tex- techniques that are used, the cutting, um, that it's so uh, it's just pure visual storytelling. Um, there isn't a lot of talking. It's just uh, cutting and and build up of of tension. And she sees a, you know, there's like this rotting skull corpse in the house. And she, you know, she, she panics, she screams. And, and then Dwayne Jones character, Ben shows up and, uh, Dwayne Jones is, is a black man who was cast, uh, according to Romero, it was because he was the best actor available. Um, there, he, he was not like intending on it being a, a comment on, civil rights, but if you've seen the movie, you know it, it has one of the most devastating and powerful endings, I think, in, in all of 20th century cinema. Um, uh, certainly, you know, top 10, for me at least. Um, and, uh, and so he, he shows up, he's on the run from these, from these flesh-eating ghouls, as they're referred to. Um, this is sort of before zombie was really like a pop, pop culture you know, thing like nowadays, everybody knows a zombie and and everybody has an idea of a zombie here. They were still sort of, um, yeah, this wasn't like a zombie movie. They were ghouls. They were flesh eating monsters. Um, George Romero is a man of, of, of great taste. You know, he would never think of, of, of making a a zombie, calling him zombie at this time, you know, of course. Um, 
So anyway, uh, so this kicks off. Barbara goes into sort of a, a state of, of, of shock, basically, where she, she doesn't really speak, and she just kind of is uh, coiled up. And it's, it's, a, you know, it's, it's one of the numerous things that makes this movie uh, not a cheap movie. It, you know, at first glance, yeah, zombie, horror, macabre, whatever violent extreme violence um but we're really diving into someone's grief here this isn't just like oh we're killing some people oh my fa-. you know i watched like the uh the zack snyder down on the dead recently you know it's like this woman loses her you know her husband gets turned to a zombie and you know the next day she's falling in love with this other guy there's nothing about the grief there's nothing about the pain and the loss this movie really uh you know, to say it's a deep exploration, you know, yeah, no, it's not a Cassavetes film, um, or something like that, but it's, uh, it's, uh, you know, we, we feel this character and her loss and her pain and agony and, uh, and it's, and it's like a really strong sort of, um, reflection of, of what that experience would be, be like. It's not just like she's this, you know, this hero who, or this like, uh, you know, one-dimensional character who just is not phased at all by the death of a loved one and just keep, you know, any of us, if there was a zombie apocalypse and a loved one, you know, was mauled by a zombie in front of us, we would be shocked and upset, but we would also, you know, be um, operating on adrenaline and and Zack Snyder definitely takes the adrenaline, uh, you know, plot-focused approach. Um, and... I think what part of what makes Romero such a fucking master is that he he takes that approach also, but he is able to really weave in these these real human elements here um, and create these dimensional characters and bring us into the the headspace of these characters. So yeah, this movie really turns into a fantastic uh, sort of. Um, sandbox exploration of humanity and what people do when they're pushed um to the limits pushed up against a wall you know it had it's you know um cutthroat uh survival of the fittest meets you know the the humanity and generosity and and love and i think deep um desire to help one another that so many humans have and that those two dichotomies that's are at play here and are and are that's sort of the central drama of the movie um and it what it's what keeps the the tension flowing and keeps the movie interesting for us is basically it's this group of people who are trapped in a house um and have to fight off you know waves of zombies and then they're also you know fighting each other at the same time and having these conflicts with each other and they all you know they all they sort of want different things and um and it's it's very interesting I don't want to do too many spoilers um but uh it's just a very well done sort of like microcosm exploration of of what humans do when their backs to a wall and um Dwayne Jones is is just absolutely fantastic. I sort of, in a way I could believe Romero when he says it was not, there was no 
like civil rights sort of um, race statement he was trying to make. He just casted the best fucking guy for the job who was Dwayne Drones. I, you know, I could see, I could believe that. Um, but I also think that, um, that, that cast sort of elevates this movie, um, onto another level. Um, the statement that's made at the end, uh, when, you know, the, the, the cops and the guys who are out hunting for the, the flesh eaters, um, show up at the house and they, and they just see Dwayne Jones and shoot him on sight. You know, yeah, that if he was a white guy, that would have been one thing. Um, but I think the fact that he's a black guy gives it sort of another layer of dimension. And the fact that this movie was made and released when it was, um, during the civil rights era and, and that ending, I mean, I think George, I think Romero would have ended that, this film, um, he would have ended it with this, with that nihilistic ending, you know, whether he had cast a white guy or a black guy, I don't think he did it because of that necessarily. Um, but it just, and again, I don't even know how many people were really like looking that into it or whether, or thinking about it too much or talking about it too much or whether it was just something that was sort of felt. Um, but it's, but you just can't look away from that or ignore that element of this film. And one of the wonderful things about zombie movies, part of what makes them so tasteful, I maybe even zombie may be the most tasteful genre. I mean, fuck Bergman, fuck art house, Europe, 1960s. I think it's zombies that um, really hit it home in the in the taste in the taste realm here. Uh, you know this the 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 um, subversive elements and just the extreme nihilistic ending. Any good zombie movie has got just a fucking nihilistic fuck it all ending um, that says something, um, makes a very bold statement, especially in the case of this film, especially in the case of Don Dawn of the Dead, the Romero Dawn of the Dead. Um, these are these are big statements that are made. Um, that are that are sort of disguised in a you know kind of a exploitation grindhouse sort of package and i think what's funny about to me about zombie movies is yes there's a, there are a million zombie movies made um it's a cheap and easy thing for like indie filmmakers to make there's a lot of cheap shitty violent zombie movies um but at the same time it's a genre where you can explore tough issues and embed them into um embed them into this sort of wacky genre um and you know it's and something that repulses so many people i mean people do not fucking like zombie movies a lot of people um of course there are many who do there are you know they're often profitable endeavors and uh, certainly there's a large audience for them but um you know, you go and ask maybe the average, like your mom's friend, if they like zombies and you know, that they likely the answer is going to be no. Um, but I think because of that, it makes it such a fun genre to sort of embed big concepts and big ideas and, you know, critical concepts and ideas, critiquing society, critiquing humanity, making statements on the way people interact with one another. Um, that uh that are really profound and um 
you know, not, um, we talk, we're going to talk, use the word didactic a lot because I can't stand didactic filmmaking, but you know, not didactic, but really getting to like sort of the core deeper issues without having them be so obvious at the surface. It really, it forces people to like when you embed these things into a genre thing like this, and especially something that comes off can come off so like crass and tasteless or whatever, it really challenges the audience and asks them to dig deeper, think deeper, think more. And then when you have like a profound in your face sort of ending, like the way that Night of the Living Dead ends, it um it's it's striking. Um and and very powerful and uh and i'm very grateful that uh you know romero and his and his uh collaborators were able to get this thing made especially um back then and that it's had sort of the iconic uh life that it continues to have influencing and impacting so many filmmakers and so many films and so many people He thought he was watching her, but she was watching him. He thought he was trespassing, but he was invited. He knew he had gone too far. He couldn't stop. He saw exactly what she wanted him to see. Brian De Palma, the modern master of suspense, invites you to witness a seduction, a mystery, a murder, body double. You can't believe everything you see. Okay, so now we come to Body Double, the third and final film. Um, you know, this movie is a, a love letter to the macabre. Um, not just the macabre, not just any macabre, but the very specific Los Angeles macabre. Um, and all that is sort of embodied in that at, at this point in time in the 80s um, it's satirical, it's a parody in a sense, it's sardonic, it's about a lot of different things, it seems very shallow, it, it'd be easy to write this thing off as sort of a basic Hitchcockian, cheap, uh, exercise in suspense, um, but this movie actually has a lot of complexity going on, and, uh, and so for this one, um, after... Many painstaking nights, deep, deep in thought, with my notepad, I have come up with a through line for this to connect this movie to the other two, and I'm gonna save that for the end of this. Um, uh, I I'm going to sort of structure this part around a very negative <laughs> review of this movie, uh, written by 
Pauline Kael, who's normally a pretty big uh, De Palma fan and advocate. Um, and <laughs> she writes uh, at the beginning of the review, if Brian De Palma were a new young director, Body Double would probably be enough to establish him as a talented fellow. In its own terms, this murder mystery set in L.A., in the overlapping worlds of serious acting and performing in porno films, is stupid yet moderately entertaining. It has a tickling performance by Melanie Griffith as Holly as Holly Bodie, a porno star with a punk vamp haircut and a sprig of Holly tattooed on her rump. But, coming from De Palma, Body Double is an awful disappointment. The voyeuristic themes and the scare sequences are so similar to elements of his earlier movies that you keep waiting for the thrills, the moments when he'll top himself, and he doesn't. He doesn't equal himself, either. He stages the big scenes mechanically, without the zest that used to send them off to horror comedy heaven. He has grown past this this material, and he must know it. Okay, so, you know, I, I don't really know where Pauline Kale is coming from here. Uh, it, maybe she maybe she had a stomach bug that week when she watched this thing. Maybe she, you know, was just looking for someone to pick on. Um, not really sure. But um, let's dive into the, the sort of some of the, the complexities here. So we have uh, this character... Uh, played by Craig Wasson, who, uh, as described by Kale, the worst piece of acting in a De Palma movie since Cliff Robinson stared at a camera and drifted through obsession. So the movie starts out with him. He's acting in this, you know, cheap B vampire horror movie, and he's playing the the lead, the the vampire, and you know, it's like a cheap sex vampire movie. Um, and he's in the coffin and he has sort of a panic attack, a claustrophobia induced panic attack. And it adds, there's this sort of personal undercurrent going on there. Uh, I know that, um, Brian De Palma's wife or ex-wife, Nancy Allen, who, who is featured prominently in a number of his films, they had a beautiful, um, working relationship she suffered from claustrophobia. And I've seen an interview with him talking about blowout where he was, and, and he, him and her were both so freaked out and, and nervous about doing that underwater sequence where the car drives off the rails and lands in the water and she has to be in the car for a moment while it's drowning in the water and the car is filling up with water and she's stuck in there. And of course it's done on a soundstage in a tank or whatever, but still terrifying for someone who's legitimately claustrophobic couldn't think of a of a scarier thing to do um that makes sitting on the new york city subway during rush hour feel easy um but anyway there you know so that it gives it that right there gives this movie sort of a we're kicking off with sort of a personal a personal flair personal element to the film that is explored upon and is an intricate part of sort of the arc of this character as he moves through this this world. And, you know, it's not really fair to expect Kale to be aware of that personal element at this point. I have the, the great fortune of, you know, having access to YouTube interviews and Criterion bonus features and whatnot where I can get some of the backstory on these things that some of these critics may not have had. 
And so this, I, I just want to make this point just because I think it's an interesting personal point about the film, but I'm not using this particular point against Kale. We'll, we'll get to some of the, some of the other like direct things that I disagree with her on in a second. It's really about this sort of struggling puppy dog actor. I mean, this guy is sort of pitiful. He so after he this whole episode um, on set of the vampire sex movie, he comes home and discovers that his, his longtime girlfriend, whose place he's living at, is cheating on him with another man. And the way this scene is handled is really great it's De Palma is playing with us the way he plays with us throughout this entire movie um the guy he walks into the house and we hear his wife in in a room um on the other side of the of the it's an apartment um of the apartment and she's you know kind of giggling and and he's kind of slowly pacing into the house looking around and he (laughs) He builds up such suspense. Is this girl having sex with another guy? Like, what's what's going on here? Um, and, you know, there's this great sort of POV look in where he looks into their den room or whatever, and the dog, their dog is, you know, asleep on the couch. And, of course, we see, like, the photo of them as a happy couple together. And it's just these these little suspense beats that are really, really well handled and really playful. You know, I remember, I remember when I, like when I rewatched it after not seeing it for a few years, um, I sort of forgot about this part a little bit. And even though, yeah, it's a clear, it's a huge part of the, of the movie, but, um, uh, I, I sort of had forgotten about this part. And so I was like, I forgot what exactly he sees his wife doing and for a second, like the way she's sort of giggling, you know, it's not like a sex thing where she's like moaning and it's very, you know, erotic and intense and graphic. She's like kind of like giggling and it's silly. It's like really silly. And it, this, this silliness and this playfulness, his, you know, him playing with us is, is going to tie into some of the things I'm going to talk about in a second. But um, I just wanted to to talk about my appreciation for this for this suspense buildup as he uh, may or may not be discovering his wife in bed with another guy. As the story unfolds, we start to sort of learn a little bit more, get a little more context, and discover that probably you know she has her shit together a little bit more. He's living at her place, and he's this sort of struggling, kind of passive, nice actor guy who's just kind of drifting around getting parts when he can and uh he's sheepish you know and uh and so uh the movie the story is really kicked off when he walks in on her and then he's kind of you know he's sleeping on his friend's couch he picks up drinking again um it's alluded to that he might have sort of like an alcoholic past and he starts drinking again at Barney's Beanery, uh, you know, couldn't think of a better place to start drinking again. Um, and that's another thing, just great, great L.A. locations here. Um, makes the movie super fun. And his, his even his, his convertible, his, like, shitty old Mustang, turquoise Mustang is fun. Um, 
And basically, it kicks off this sort of odyssey into sort of the L.A. sex underworld, uh, uh, other side of, of Hollywood sort of thing. Um, the underbelly of Hollywood Boulevard, if you will. Not the first movie to explore that by any means. Um, but I would put this movie above, you know, m- pretty much all the other ones that do explore it. Um this movie has a lot of empathy for the struggling actor. Uh, you know, he's, he's going around to these auditions. They're not going great. It's just, he's on, you know, it's about the grind really. He's on the grind and he meets this guy who is sort of this suave, nice fellow actor guy. He, he looks like he has maybe a little money or is just has a little better taste, a little more going on a little bit of, uh, you know, je ne sais quoi, if you will. And this guy tells him, you know, hey, takes sort of a liking to him, and he and he says, hey, you know, I, I'm staying, I'm, I'm house-sitting for this guy up in the Hollywood Hills, and I got to take off for this gig up in Seattle for a couple weeks, and I'd love for you to, um, if you want, you know, if you need a place to stay, you can uh, crash at this place, uh, you know. So he goes up there, and of course, the it's a it's a stunning house. So the house is actually a real house designed in the '60s uh, by John Lautner, and it's a it's a crazy house. I mean, it's an LA landmark sort of thing. It's a modernist masterpiece, and it sort of looks like it's modeled after like a air traffic control tower or something it has this this aviator feel to it it looks like a building you'd see at an airport or something and it has a beautiful panoramic view of los angeles up in the hills looking down on the city and also more importantly for this story looking down on the other houses in the hollywood hills and of course there is a telescope that's pointed at one of these houses where a sexy young woman young wife sort of mysterious woman lives and the you know the telescope is pointed right in on her bedroom and of course you know this movie is a satire a parody of the idea of sort of a cheap b-movie porno piece of shit you know so that's that's where we're sort of working off from here um so yeah this movie does feel it it is a little bit cheap it is there is sort of a misogynist element to it but I think what De Palma is very intentionally doing here is he is turning the camera back around onto himself and he is critiquing his own perspective and critiquing his own actions and critiquing himself as a man. I think that's what Craig Wasson is, really, is he's, Brian De Palma's put himself into this character. It's an interesting diversion from the characters he's put himself in in the past who are much more sort of nerdy and confident and technically oriented. I mean, I think of... um, the son in in uh, in Dress to Kill, for example, we're sort of getting a different side of De Palma here, which I think is really interesting. 
And it's really about sort of this inner conflict of, of not being able to look away sort of, and, and being accused of being a sort of a pervert or a peeping Tom and the idea of that. But at the same time, this sort of primal urge to, you know, you can't take your eyes away from a beautiful naked woman who's dancing in the window. I mean, come on, you know, um, yes, it is perverted, but at the same time, it sort of touches on this, this urge that, you know, so many humans have. And it's really a cinematic exploration into the idea of not being able to look away. And this ends up playing into the whole, you know, the sort of the second part of the movie where he really dives into the sexual underworld of Los Angeles. I'm going to try to avoid giving too much away about where things go or what the big reveal is at the end. Um, but I'm going to kind of break into this review a little bit more here. Okay, so Kale, another sentence from Kale's scathing review. The big showy scenes recall vertigo and rear window so obviously that the movie is like an assault on the people who have put De Palma down for being derivative. Yes, um, I'm sorry, Kale, but, uh, you know, again, going to have to respectfully disagree with that. Um, I think he is he is expanding on points previously touched on in films like Dress to Kill. Um, uh, and he's doing it in a way that plays into the themes of this movie more. And, you know, this movie, it's this movie is at the time in the, at this time in the 80s you know where we were at with pop culture and everything and the the rise of slashers and this movie is very much feels you know it this movie is talking to the slasher genre it's in conversation with the slasher genre i i wouldn't necessarily consider this movie a slasher film although maybe you could there is a whole sequence where a maniac is running around with a massive phallic drill and he's attempting to murder this woman with this huge drill and sure it's it's you know it's got a slasher thing going on um and you know this time in the 80s this time this was a time of decadence time of you know big parties cocaine the music the colors everyone was having fun and i think part of the reason that slashers became so such a popular form of entertainment in the 80s uh, was because people were able to sort of um, pull back a little bit from the violence and the strife of the 70s I'm mainly talking about you know the Vietnam War and even a lot of the civil rights stuff in the 60s that was all a little bit in the rearview mirror at this point and we were in a time in culture, in American culture, where, sure, there was still, you know, violence going on and crime and everything, but people, um, and people just had a different perspective on all of it, and I think they were able to, on some deeper level, uh, relate to, and maybe appreciate is not quite the right word for like you know why people enjoy slashers or why they were so popular um but just able to digest it better 
the slasher genre was an extremely popular genre because the studio executives realized that these movies were pretty cheap to make and people loved them and would go and see them and they were, you know, very entertaining and very financially successful and there was just a boom of these of these slasher movies. I mean the you know, the well known ones are you know, Halloween, Friday the thirteenth, Nightmare on Elm Street. Those are the big, you know, sort of pinnacle eighties slashers, although Halloween was made in the late seventies. Um and Halloween sort of kicked off the slasher boom, really, the success of Halloween. There were, were there Halloween is not the first slasher, and I'm not gonna, you know, go too much into the the slasher history here, but um, but you know, Halloween sort of made people realize that there was a lot of money to be made, and slashers, you know, at a first glance, they are pretty shallow. They're just sort of shallow, violent shock entertainment and that's what this movie is interacting with and in conversation with this movie is it's both critiquing it and trying to uh expand on it in a in a certain way um it's trying to elevate it i should say and it does this um the the sequence where he so he so the the killer is broken into this house he's i'm not going to try not to give too much away but the killer is broken in this house he's watching the house through the telescope. He sees the killer. He runs to the house. It's this huge suspense moment, this huge suspense operatic set piece. It's an incredible sequence. Um, It's my favorite part of the movie where he's running to the house. He bumps into these two yuppie guys in the Hollywood Hills on a jog. He's like, we got to go save this girl. And they all run to the house and the killer's in there. And it's this sort of cat and mouse moment where he's, you know, he's trying to find the killer and there's a series of setbacks. Again, going to try not to give too much, too much away. But the the way that scene is choreographed and there's a moment where the, the, the guy with, he's got the drill and he's about to execute and he's, he's literally, he's inches away from drilling into this woman's body and the cord for the drill, you know, pops out of the wall. So, yeah, I mean this, you know, this scene <laughs> might be yeah, it's a little mechanical, but I think the mechanics serve a conceptual purpose that drives home the points of that the movie is making, some of the sardonic, the more sardonic satirical points about the horror genre and the slasher genre, and I think the the moments like when the drill the drill he's about to you know get the drill into the woman the extremely phallic drill and you know drill her up and the drill comes unplugged and yes it it might be a little stupid it might be a little obvious or simple but it's like it's ironic he's making a joke he is oh, he it's self-aware jokish filmmaking and he's having a blast with it and even if it's mechanical, and if by mechanical you mean masterfully crafted and cut together and shot, then yeah, sure, okay, mechanical, whatever, uh, mechanical in a in a great way. Um, but he's also he's adding another layer to the mechanical feeling of it, and that's this. Then that's this joke. He's he has a sense of humor, and the whole movie is approached with this vivid sense of humor. Um, 
that just should I, I just I, I kind of can't believe that Kale is choosing to overlook that here. And it's a little bit disappointing. I know that she has advocated for a lot of his films. She's a De Palma defender, if you will. And it's a little disappointing that she wasn't sort of seeing some of those things or wanting to pick up on some of those things. And, you know, maybe she did see that sense of humor in the film and just chose to write it off as as silly and stupid and dumb and, and doesn't want to appreciate it. And Kale is a very smart critic, so I'm sure... I'm sure she's she on some level picked up on all the things that I'm saying and for whatever reason still decided to just write this movie off. Um, but uh, I, I just I fundamentally and adamantly disagree with her take on this. And yeah, I mean, it's stupid, but it's also ironic and funny and a comment on the stupidity of the slasher and i and it's a comment that has not been made in previous de palma work i don't think um it's sort of, this movie is sort of celebrating the the superficial frivolous stupidity of the time as much as it's critiquing it and in conversation with it Throughout the movie, this guy, this actor, is going through sort of this transformation. Um, he's clearly, you know, he's. I definitely see some Jimmy Stewart in this guy, even in some of his, you know, some of the like the way he speaks. Um, and you know, so clearly, obviously, you know, De Palma's super influenced by Hitchcock, and there is, re- uh, you know, this movie is reminiscent of a Hitchcockian sort of mode and style. Um, but I certainly don't agree with Kale that this is an assault on people who have put De Palma down for being derivative of Hitchcock. I think this is a legit uh, add-on to the conversation, and uh, he's saying things in this film that he hasn't said before, legitimately. I mean, come on. Come on, Kale. Come on, Kale. Give me, give me a break. Give me a break. You're having a stomach bug when you watch this thing. Give it, give it a rewatch. I know you're dead, but you know, watch it in heaven or something. Come on. Um, so, uh, you know, we have this. We follow this actor. He and he has the actor has a great arc. I mean, he he's struggling at the beginning of the movie. He's down in the dumps. Um, you know, he's been fucked over, chewed up, and spat out. He gets fired off of that vampire movie for being claustrophobic. The director can't, you know, find a way to work with him. And uh, because of his claustrophobia, I mean, you can't, you know, if you're playing a vampire, you got to be in a fucking coffin at some point, you know. So how are you going to do, how are you going to deal with a claustrophobic actor? It's it's a tough thing. It's a tough I feel bad for claustrophobic actors. This movie really gave me a, as a director myself, it gave me a, a little bit of a soft spot and a, and a understanding for the struggles of the claustrophobic actor. Um, but you know, this guy is, is fighting to sort of come into himself and, and Kale critiques the performance as you know, the guy, yeah, the guy doesn't have a, amazing screen presence he's very bland um he's he sort of wanders through the movie like a a lost puppy and that's the that's the point um the point is that he is a bland and he's searching for something 
And I think it's actually quite brave of De Palma to cast someone like this and and write a whole movie around a, a character like this. Because, yeah, he's not someone that we're conditioned to really root for or care about all that much. Especially at that time in the 80s where neurotic, sensitive male leads were certainly not the norm and not what audiences were really accustomed to watching. And he is, you know, he's essentially what I think he's doing is searching for his manhood in a way. Um, he's searching to, uh, to find that sort of confidence component that he's missing in himself. And without giving too much away, I think by the end of the film, regardless of where he ends up, he, he finds that in some way, and it's very satisfying to watch him find that and come into himself. I mean, you know, by the end of this movie, he's, you know, he's, he's grabbing his balls and, and, you know, getting shit done. He's doing shit. He's, um, you know, he's coming into himself. And another thing about this movie is just the way it portrays the seedy sex world's atmosphere. It may, um, it may not resonate with some audiences today. People might, you know, be upset by it in some ways, but you can't say it's not honest. You can't say it's not, um, sort of a a time capsule, a, a piece of, of history, um, and a look into a world that, you know, was very much a product of its time and, Something that you know probably you know it's a it's a different ball game now the porno industry and where we're at and the models and whatnot, um, not the not the models like the actors or the porno stars but just the the model of how porn shit is made and distributed, um, you know it it back in back in this time and the world that this is portraying porn is you know these pornos are really linked to. Hollywood in a certain sense and porn I don't think now is linked to Hollywood um, or approached that the way that it was um, back when back in like the 70s and 80s and it's linked to Hollywood not directly obviously I mean you know it's not like we have a bunch of actresses who are starting out in the porno industry and then becoming major Hollywood stars or even directors, um, although there are some, I mean, you know, Francis Ford Coppola edited porno movies, you know, back in the day. I could see a director, you know, an indie filmmaker in a shitty little, you know, production office in uh, in East Hollywood in the, the late 70s, trying to, trying to get his movie off the ground, and across the hall... There is a, uh, you know, there's a, a, a porn director staging, you know, a casting call for, uh, for a, you know, a cock in a porno film or something like that. Um, that's sort of what I mean. Like the two industries were very much adjacent from a location standpoint, like literally geographically speaking, um, you know, Hollywood Boulevard and that area you know, was a, a place where where the sex industry was thriving. <clears throat> and now uh, there there's a way kind of like larger gap and and separation. I'm sure I'm sure there's still some crossovers. I mean, I, I recently 
worked with a sound guy who, you know, he, he does sound for, for films, for narrative stuff, for documentaries. And also he, he's worked on, uh, porn stuff too. So there's always, you know, it's, it's the film industry and porn shit is, you know, there's still films in a way. So, um, Ooh, I'm, I'm, I'm sweating now guys. I'm sweating. Uh, but anyway, so another Pauline Kale excerpt here. <laughs> Double Body is not, to put it mildly, a spirited piece of movie making. It features, uh, on, parentheses, on a character called the Indian, the worst makeup job of recent times. And the score by Pino Donaggio seems to have been ladled over the images. The thought of what some of the scenes might have been like without it is a little frightening. Um, thank you, Kale. You were giving me another important point uh, to talk about this movie and just De Palma in general because he uses this again in, in other work. I, Mission Impossible comes to mind. The, the idea of the mask. And uh, there's an artist, a, a, a sort of a conceptual artist I'm a, I'm a major fan of named Paul McCarthy who is also really, he's a performance artist, um, you know, paintings, performance, etc., he is, uh, you know, really, also really, he's probably about the same age as De Palma, actually. They're probably right around the same age. Um, and he's also really interested in the idea of the mask. And, and uh, De Palma is clearly interested in that idea here. And it's clearly a theme and a, something that he, a concept that he is interested in. This idea of someone putting on a mask and moving in the world in a mask and the perspective of a mask and the perception that the way, you know, the way a perception is changed, um, seeing, you know, when you're wearing a mask, how you're being seen, um, but also how you are seeing the outside world too. I mean, a mask affects your or can affect your perception of things, your field of view, your perspective as you look out onto the world. And what does this remind us of? It reminds us of a camera, a cinema camera, which is, you know, the camera, the brain. Um, these are the things that the, the mask, I think, is sort of um, playing with and speaking to the these these ideas of of perception both you know self-perception other 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 people's perception and the way they perceive us and our identities and then also the the way that our own masks that we wear affect how we see and perceive what is in front of us and um this ties into you know the 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 idea of the camera and the way that everything involved in the camera and the way the camera is placed and the movements of the camera and the way a camera um, conveys emotion and interacts with a space and all that great cinema stuff um, that, that for sure Brian De Palma is, uh, is interested in um, gets explored here. And yeah, it is, I don't know if it's a shitty makeup job. It looks ridiculous. Um, but again, that's the point. The point is this movie is ridiculous and it looks ridiculous. And it's doing that to both entertain and make 
um, points and explore ideas about things. And, you know, I'm not a philosopher or an art critic or a, you know, a serious historian or something. So I'm not going to try to go into, you know, all the, all the themes, um, you know, and all the concepts behind this sort of this mask idea. But there is something to it, I think, that um, is relevant even today in, a, in American society. I mean, just, you know, thinking about sort of, you know, social media as a mask, your Instagram profile picture as a mask. Everyone, you know, has interacts with masks and wears masks in their life and to some extent. And uh, and this movie is just extrapolating on that and taking that to an absurd level. Um, and that's that's fantastic. Um, and it's extremely entertaining to watch. Here's here's another one from Kale. There's a key difference between this picture and Good De Palma. In Carrie, when the camera moves lingoriously around teen teenage girls in a high school locker room, there's a buzz between the camera and what it's filming. But here, De Palma and his cinematographer, Stefan Burham, get away from the out-of-work actors' low-rent apartments and the litter of pizza rinds very quickly. De Palma saves the lingorious camera work for the sleek, expensive settings such as Beverly Hills Shopping Mall called the Rodeo Collection, and there's, not, and there's no comic buzz. The camera seems wowed, impressed. The voyeuristic sequences with Wasson peeping through a telescope aren't particularly erotic. De Palma shows more sexual feeling for the swank buildings and the real estate. Again, um, well, first of all, I, I disagree with that a little bit. Um, I think that the the especially the two big sort of set piece well there's three big sort of set piece sequence moments in this movie there's the scene where he's he's trailing this woman who he's been watching in the house who he's captivated by and he's slowly realizing that she is in some kind of danger and he's following her he's you know he's driving through Beverly Hills following her they end up at this shopping mall and there's this moment where she's at a payphone and he's and the and the killer there's sort of this dance between uh uh Craig Wasson this mysterious lady and the killer um who is the the, the worst makeup job of of recent times the the Indian and they're all three sort of dancing around each other and there's some really fantastic sort of like editing and camera movement moments where the killer is walking across the frame and we're moving in on one of the other characters. And it, it really does feel like this choreographed dance. And it, it sizzles. It sizzles. It sizzles in a different way than, you know, a, a shot moving through a high school locker room with a bunch of naked teenage girls and a bunch of gloss and a bunch of steam. Sure. Um, but it still feels, uh, erotic, but in a, just a colder way and in a more superficial way, which again is the point of this, of this movie. And it's, this movie, it's courageous what De Palma is doing. He is, I think he's, this is a very personal movie for him. I think he's looking back on himself and looking back on his career and he's 
in a way, sort of tearing himself apart. He's critiquing himself. He's diving into himself and his work and sort of the culture that he has directly contributed to sort of creating and where and where that culture was at at this time. And he is, uh, you know, pointing the finger at himself. Um, and I think that's a that's a courageous thing to do as a filmmaker. And it's unfortunate Kale, who's such, again, such an advocate for De, a lot of De Palma's work, not all of it, but a lot of it, and writes such fascinating things, uh, to, you know, about him and, and such makes such great points. Um, it's unfortunate that she wouldn't be a little bit more perceptive to some of those things. I'm not saying this is De Palma's greatest film necessarily. It's certainly one of my favorites. And I would actually, I, I would go as far as to put this in the same realm as Dress to Kill, Blowout, and Carrie. I, I put this, you know, it might not be quite on par with those movies. I mean, those three but I think it's really close, really, really close. And to me personally, it's actually, ah, man, you know, I don't want to go on record and say this is my favorite De Palma, but ah, maybe, uh, maybe I'll, maybe I'll have the courage to do that someday. I, not, not right now, not right now. I need to, I need to think about that a little bit more here, but it's, well worth a watch and now I'm going to get into I, I think if you've been following along and listening to this rant uh, hopefully you will see how this is connected this just like uh, the big gun down and night of the living dead is a it's a scathing criticism in a sense on on society and culture at that point in time um, and this 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 film, I think, critique it, it, the, the scathing criticism in this film. I think, well, I wouldn't describe this film as a subtle movie necessarily, but yeah, I think it's a little more sort of subtle and complex than the other two. The other two, it's sort of uh, very much like baked into the plot points. This movie, you know, you could read and see this movie initially as just like an absurd, stupid shallow film that's just entertainment and violence and cinematic flourishes and yeah you could read it like that whereas I think the other two it's pretty hard to like not see uh the the points of criticism that it's making um so in a way for me that makes this movie actually just as effective and more interesting in a sense um, not to downgrade the two other movies, I love those. I love the two other movies that we've talked about um, a lot. But uh, yeah, I like a complex, layered movie, and this and Body Double is is certainly that. The movie also has one of the funniest and most playful endings in all of De, De Palma cinema. I mean, <laughs> the ending is hilarious. And, you know, not everybody is going to have the sense of humor that I have around this ending, and that's fine. Uh, but it's well worth seeing. Um, it's, you know, again, if you're into horror and you like slasher movies, it's definitely worth a watch. Um, you've probably already seen it. Or maybe you saw it, you know, when you were in high school or something, and, and you know, now you can look at it again with sort of a different uh, lens. Um 
I, I certainly, I know for me, I wa- the first time I watched this movie, I definitely didn't get as much out of it as I did the second time I watched it. I watched this movie for the first time. Man, I think I might have been in like in college or something. And I just, yeah, I sort of just brushed it off a little bit as just kind of like an entertaining, fun, sort of crazy, violent, like suspenseful Hitchcock ripoff. And then I, I, re- I rewatched it a little while back and, uh, and, it just it struck me in a whole different way and um and i really uh you know grew to value what de palma was doing here um in and sort of in a new light um having seen probably hundreds of movies too since you know since i watched this before that that gives me that adds a little bit to that adds a little bit to the you know the the shift in perspective here so you can link up with us at Cinemat Random Pod on Instagram. That is our that is our way of uh, of communicating with everyone. Um, so follow us on there again. That's Cinemat Random Pod on Instagram. We're only doing Instagram, no Facebook, no Twitter, um, at least for right now, and probably and probably forever. I hope you had fun listening to me talk about these films i i certainly enjoyed myself uh even when i felt a little bit crazy at times and a little bit um self-indulgent as far as frequency and when we'll be coming out with new episodes i'm still sort of feeling this thing out and and figuring out how this sort of fits into my workflow i'm the plan is to publish at uh at least one episode a month um, ideally I'd like to be maybe doing like every two weeks or something like that. Um, so we'll see if I can swing that. Um, but, uh, can, again, you can follow us on cinema at random pod Instagram. That is where, uh, we'll be posting new, you know, information about upcoming episodes and when things are dropping and, you know, all that good stuff. <laughs>